0: in the words of Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and God's compassion is over all that God has made. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all ways and kind in all doings. The Lord is near to all who call upon the Lord to all who call on God in truth. God fulfills the desire of all who fear. God also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love, but all the wicked God will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless God's holy name forever and ever. Amen. This morning we are turning to
1: a story of peace. Uh, this story of peace comes from the book of Genesis, which, if you have your Bible, uh, is right at the beginning of the book, and that is true. Whether you are looking at a story Bible uh, for some of the children or people who prefer to read these stories laid out in this way, or if you are using uh, one of the traditional Bibles, you can always find Genesis and this story right at the beginning. As I said, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, today. We have been journeying through people and practices of peace all summer. Uh, knowing when we laid this out in March or April that we would need these practices of peace and that we would need the inspiration of modern peacemakers to help us live more deeply into our calling. I am telling this story rather than reading it this morning, so if you have a uh, younger person in your house Uh, who would like to hear this story in a different way. This is a great time for them to come nearby where they can hear it. Uh, If not, our recordings are always available, or you may find yourself inspired to retell it later. The story happens in a time and a place when it was the job of parents, uh, mostly dads, to find husbands and wives for their children. The story is about Abraham, And you might remember Abraham because he and his wife, Sarah, had a child when they were very old. Their child was a boy, and his name was Isaac. Isaac grew up, and Abraham and Sarah got older, and they knew that it was time to help Isaac find a wife to spend his life with, to journey alongside him when they were no longer there. And so Abraham called a servant to him, and he said to the servant, I am sending you to the land of my ancestors to find a wife for my son. You must find a wife who is kind and good. The servant heard this, and he was nervous. How would he know if a woman that he had never met before was kind and good? And how would he convince her to come marry Isaac, who he had never, she had never even met? But as it was the custom in that time and in that place, he took a lot of precious things. He took bracelets and jewels, and he took ten camels, and he set off on the journey. When he got to a city called Aram Naharim, which was the city that Abraham's brother lived in, the servant stopped at a well for a drink of water. In that time, remember, there weren't any faucets, and it was the job of the women to go get the water from the well. So as the servant sat there, thirsty, he prayed. God, help me find the right woman who might consider being a wife for Isaac. And may I know her by her generosity. The person who offers me a drink will be the right person. Pretty soon a woman named Rebecca came along. And the servant looked at her, and he said to her, Could I have a drink? And Rebecca brought him a drink of water, and then she looked to where the servant had had the camels lay down, a little ways off from the well, and she brought water to those ten camels. And camels drink a lot. And they were very thirsty, too. And so it was a lot of hot and hard work to bring water to the camels. When Rebecca did this, the servant knew that she was a kind person. And he asked her if she would think about marrying Isaac. The story goes on and it tells a little bit more about how the servant went to meet Rebecca's family. But we're stopping there from today, to think about how we see God in that story. I think one place we might see God is in the way that Rebecca showed kindness. Remember, she saw that the servant was thirsty, but she didn't stop there. She saw also that the ten hot, thirsty camels who drink a lot (laughs) needed water, too. May this story help us to be kind people in the world. Amen. I know I have uh, mentioned this before because it was such a part of my childhood, so some of you who uh, have heard me have heard me say that we spent a lot of time camping in the Colorado backcountry. And I'm not sure if what I have shared before is that I usually filled up most of my allotted space, which was not very much, uh, with books. This was pre-Kindle days. (laughs) And so I would take all of these books up with me. And one summer, uh, when I was, however old you are, when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, I took that series up with me. And I would sit there and I would read And when I finished that last book, I remember sitting on this rock and just looking around. And I was sure that if I stayed there long enough, then I could just see Aslan coming right over the hill. I had been taken completely to that time and that place. There are books that do more than entertain, they transform. A friend of mine calls books like that Beautiful Books, with a capital B, Beautiful Books. And I think Beautiful Books has a particular ring to it, but I know that it's not limited to books. It happens with music, with movies, with TV shows. I remember back in January when The Good Place ended, And everyone felt like they had just heard the most hopeful, profound sermon ever. These are works of art that open us to something new, and they help us rediscover something we already know. I like to call them sacred stories. The thing about sacred stories is that they require some wrestling. Like Jacob and his latter, who we would meet later on in the story of Genesis, we find something new in these stories, something that is a blessing and a challenge. In 2006, journalist Sandy Tolan published The Lemon Tree, which has become, for me, a sacred story about the friendship of Palestinian Basir al-Khari and Israeli Dalia Ashkenazi. Based on uh, interviews with these two and writings that they had already done themselves, Tolan tells the story, and he opens it by sharing this. The young Arab man approached a mirror in the washroom of Israel's West Jerusalem bus station. Bashir al-Qiari stood alone before a row of porcelain baselines, and he leaned forward, regarding himself. He turned his head slightly, left and right and back again. He smoothed his hair, he nudged his tie, he pinched his clean-shaven face. He was making certain all of this was real. For nearly two decades, since he was six years old, Bashir had been preparing for this journey. It was the breath, Tolan says, the breath, the currency, the bread of his family, of nearly every family that he knew. It was what everyone talked about all the time, return. In exile, there was little else worth Dreaming of. That excerpt happens in the mid 1960s. And Tolan goes on to describe the journey of Basir al Kiari from the bus station to the home that his family had fled when he was six years old in 1948 when the State of Israel was created. For Jewish Israelis, this was called the Day of Independence. For Palestinians who had lived there before it became a separate state and were then forced into their own exile, while the world wrestled with this hard question of how do we end the Jewish exile, the Palestinians called it the Nabka, the Catastrophe independence, or catastrophe. One event, two very different perspectives. Throughout the book, what unfolds is the way that this event shaped the lives of these two people who met each other in their 20s, how they came to know each other, and how they bonded a bit over their love of that same House, the house they had both lived in when they were children and both held a claim to. What I'd like to say is that Basir al and Dalia Ashkenazi became friends and overcame their differences and inspired a movement for peace in the Middle East. But to leave it there would be an overstatement. They did become something, like friends, certainly more than acquaintances, but the differences were still very strong, and they struggled with it and have struggled with it since. It is true, though, that after Dahlia's parents died and she inherited that house, she had a conversation with Basir's family, and they agreed together to turn the house into a peace center where Jewish and Arab students might come together to learn. If you go to the website for this center, which is still in existence, uh, it's called the Open House, they talk on there about how hard this work continues to be. Dahlia says it's hard because although we try to be empathetic, what we discover is that empathy is preferential. Our empathy has a bias. And so the good and the important work that they have done is really a drop in the bucket of what it will take to bring peace to the region. The fierce beauty of this sacred story and the part that I want to think more about today is that while it is a particular story, about a particular time and a particular place, and while it is inspiring for what has been accomplished, it is also a universal story about people and understanding, and the search for unity. We might draw inspiration from that today because we are again, or maybe still today, looking for unity. Mostly, I think we are looking for the thing that has the power to unite us, The Apostle Paul, time and time again in his letters, implored, begged, pleaded with the early church to find unity in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, he said, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you should be in agreement, and that there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Clearly, that's working well. All of us Christians united in the same mind and the same purpose. We are trying, but we have the same arguments that the early church was having. And we're not having a lot more luck uniting around any other number of things that we might find to be uniting forces. Nationality, Politics, family, they're all as likely to be sources of strife as they are to be a place where we find commonalities. I am saying this because it is a reminder that while the work of unity is important and it is faith-filled, it is also imperfect. We live into the resurrection, but we are not yet living fully in the resurrection. So knowing that the work is hard and ongoing and that it seems especially laden at this point in U.S. history, the question that's in front of us is the same question that was in front of Dalia, and Basir, and the early church, and even the disciples of Jesus. Which is, how do we keep going when it sometimes seems like our steps are so little, and that path is so long? I've heard that question time and time again, and sometimes it's asked like this, how are we going to sustain ourselves for the work of building this kingdom of God? How are we going to work and stay engaged in creating a world where there is love and unity for all people? And I think... When we start to answer that question, we have to be very clear that when we say unity, we don't mean passiveness. Unity is not agreeing to disagree when justice is on the line. True unity. True unity will happen when everyone puts the well-being of others first. I know at least half of you right now, I can't see your faces on the screen anymore, I know at least half of you right now are uh, scoffing maybe at the possibility that that will ever happen. And maybe right now you're picturing a few folks in your mind who are like your uh, favorite people to pick on, and you know in your heart of hearts that they will never, ever, ever going to be able to put the well-being of anyone first. And so there is good news and there is bad news. The good news is that we do not have to worry about those people. The bad news, or the hard news at least, is that we also do not get off the hook because those people aren't doing their part. As Jesus said, the reign of God is within, which also means that the work of transformation begins within. And so as we learn how to keep putting each other's well-being in front of our own, we will become more effective at inspiring others to do the same in thought and word and deed. Our unity, though, has to be rooted in something bigger than what we believe or even who we are. It has to come from who God is. And that's not just an intellectual understanding, that is a soul-filled understanding. And what I mean by that is that we have to make time to experience God's transformative love ourselves, as well as to think or believe that God's love exists and that it is transformative. The need for this is why religious and wisdom traditions have contemplative practices, like prayer or meditation. And sometimes, especially when the work seems so pressing, we can think that these moments of silence and prayer um, are like self-absorbed navel-gazing. It's not. It is crucial for the work of transforming ourselves and the world. And so with that in mind, and with the sense that it is better to experience something than to hear about it or talk about it, I'd like to invite you to join me in a time for meditation this morning. Uh, There are a lot of prayer and meditation practices that are transformative, and we make it habit to try some here. So this is one that we have done before, but it has been a bit. Uh, In the spirit of interfaith relationships, I am uh, using this loving-kindness meditation from the Buddhist tradition. But you will find, if you've never done it before, that it has similarities uh, to prayer and meditation practices in many traditions. And if you already do this often, or something similar, you will also find that you can do it multiple times a day. (laughs) So let us begin by just grounding ourselves. Wherever you are, you might come uh, to your breath. You might come to one of those images that we showed during the Uh, Psalm 145, if there was something that was particularly grounding there for you. If you have your candle nearby, you might focus on that. And we breathe together, connected in the Spirit. As I say these things, I invite you to say aloud or think them quietly to yourself. May I be free from inner and outer harm and danger. May I be safe and protected. May I be free of mental suffering or distress. May I be happy May I be healthy and strong. May I be able to live in this world happily, peacefully, joyfully, and with ease. And now you're going to try to keep that spirit that you have within you, but. Move your focus to thinking of a person who is easy for you to feel unconditional love for. This is somebody uh, that you can easily love without worrying about getting something back. Picture them saying after me again, may they be free from inner and outer harm. May they be safe and protected. May they be free of mental suffering or distress. May they be happy. May they be healthy and strong. May they be able to live in this world happily, peacefully, joyfully, and with ease. And now you might move to thinking of somebody that you have difficulty with. This is somebody that typically when you think of them, uh, there might be resentments or judgments. And we're going to repeat these same phrases, but if you have uh, trouble with doing this, it is helpful to remember that you can say in front of each of the phrases, to the best of my ability. And so we will practice that way today. Picturing this person who is harder for you, Say after me, to the best of my ability, I wish you to be free from inner and outer harm. To the best of my ability, I wish for you to be safe and protected. To the best of my ability, I wish for you to be happy. may you be able to live in this world happily, peacefully, joyfully, and with ease. And as we close and draw back together, imagining the whole world being held in for what I understand is Christ's love, We say together, may all beings be safe, happy, and live joyously. Amen.